It's 11 minutes before the hour. You're listening to Raven Radio, KCAW Sitka. Today is Monday, July 31st, 2023. I'm Brooke Schaefer with Raven News. The numbers are in for the first opening in the summer troll fishery for king salmon in southeast Alaska. The 12-day season saw more Chinook landed than expected, despite fewer boats being on the water. KCAW's Robert Woolsey reports. Southeast trollers brought in about 85,000 king salmon from July 1st to July 12th, about 8,000 fish over the target for the first opener of the season. At first, it might look like enthusiasm played a role, as it was only on June 21st that the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals issued a stay that allowed the fishery to occur at all. But that was not the case. Grant Hagerman manages the troll fishery for the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He says even fewer trollers participated this summer than in 2022. Uh, you know, we had 580 roughly participants in that king fishery last year and we're you know just over 500 for this opening as recently as 10 years ago hagerman says it was more typical to see 800 trollers during the first summer king opener having 80 boats drop out in just one year suggests that the wild fish conservancy lawsuit created just enough uncertainty to steer trollers into other fisheries or even into other lines of work till you know just a, a, several weeks before the fishery i think a, a lot of permit holders Uh, maybe had to make other plans, whether that was, you know, finding other work in town, um, you know, long lining instead, you know, just that question mark. I think some of them had to make plans and and just didn't fish the opening. Some of the permit holders from out of state may not have come up. Obviously, fuel is still an issue as well. Nevertheless, the fishing was pretty good for the 500 boats that stayed in the game. Hagerman says three days of bad weather during the opener meant for some busy days during good conditions. A lot of the work involved shaking undersized kings, which were below the legal length of 28 inches, and trying to keep hooks free for bigger fish. Hagerman says trollers tend to pull their gear and move to a different area when they're catching a lot of shakers. The average weight of legal fish was 11 pounds. And surprisingly, legal fish that are, you know, even under the 10 pounds, you know, they're just kind of long and skinny. There's a fair amount of those. But um, so it's, you know, I wouldn't say like alarmingly low compared to, to recent years. But, you know, for the long term, yeah, it's it's still down. Hagerman says prices were comparable to the long term average for summer kings between five and six dollars per pound. The market forces that created low prices for Alaska's sockeye fisheries have not been a factor for kings. The delay of Chinook fishing in Canada and the closure of California's salmon fishery both helped to prop up prices for southeast kings. Although the first opener exceeded its target, roughly 24,000 kings remain in the summer troll allocation for kings. Hagerman anticipates that the Department of Fish and Game, after accounting for landings in the sport and commercial net fisheries, will make an announcement regarding a second king opening on August 4th. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. Federal transportation dollars are pouring into the Alaska Marine Highway System. It's saving the state money now, but Alaska's Ferry Board is looking far into the future and drafting a 20-year plan. As Coast Alaska's Angela Denning reports, it includes three new ferries in the next four years. What should Alaska's marine highways look like in the next couple of decades? That's the question prompting a long-term ferry plan. Craig Tornga is Alaska's marine director. The purpose of this whole plan is really to guide us, you know, in our capital and operating investments going all the way out through 2045. He was speaking with the board that makes recommendations to the state during a lengthy meeting in mid-July. 
He said the plan seeks to standardize the fleet and terminals for efficiency. The state is working with marine engineering firm Elliott Bay Design Group out of Seattle. The first phase of the plan is set to be shared with the Alaska legislature in August. The long-range plan lists many changes that are needed before the service can be reliable again. The Alaska Marine Highway connects 33 coastal communities, but services and funding have steadily declined over the past decade. Ferry board members have discussed improving the system since the board was created by the legislature and started meeting two years ago. At their last meeting, members like Juanetta Ayers emphasized the importance of the marine highways. I've sat in many, many community meetings and heard over and over and over again from people about the importance of the ferry system in terms of their medical travel, that many people cannot get on a small plane to get out of their communities to get to uh, the next level of medical care. But passengers likely won't see better service until more ferry workers are hired and the aging fleet is improved. Crew shortages, especially licensed crew, continue to be a problem. The plan seeks to keep eight vessels serving 35 ports of call over the next three years and one vessel in maintenance. However, only six ferries are running this summer. There are no reserve ferries on standby for emergencies or unplanned maintenance needs. And that will continue to create reliability issues until the fleet size is increased, the plan states. That's supposed to happen in the next few years. Three new ferries are to be added to the fleet by the end of 2027. One of them will be a hybrid model, and one will be electric. The next phases of the long-range plan will look at demographics and demand for all marine highway communities and seek input from stakeholders. A draft of the 20-year plan is expected to be finished next summer. Board member Norm Carson encouraged the engineers to get data from locals. He's lived in Pelican on Chichikov Island since 1967 and says the population fluctuates. The community probably at least doubles in size between April and, say, October. So what you see on a census data is not nearly accurate. Get a hold of myself, the mayor, or somebody like that for more information. Juliet Lehman with the engineering firm assured the board that getting local feedback is part of the process. She says they'll be checking with stakeholders to make sure the data in the plan meshes with reality. To receive input from community members to ensure that the data set is a collection of information that is accurate, up-to-date. Like he said, maybe some of our sources don't have the nuance that a community member would have firsthand knowledge of. The state of Alaska spent just $7.5 million operating ferries last year. That's over $100 million less than it spent in 2015. That's because the federal government is sending transportation money throughout the country, including nearly $97 million to Alaska ferries last year. Federal dollars for ferries are expected to continue coming to the state through the Infrastructure Investments and Jobs Act. About a billion dollars is allocated to ferry projects in the country with routes greater than 50 miles, which places Alaska in the position to get a lot of the funds. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. What is causing the orange and reddish colors in tidal waters near Ketchikan, and is the water safe to swim in? Those are some of the questions residents have been asking recently. KRBD's Maria Dudzak spoke with a local biology professor to find answers. Barbara Morgan is a professor at the University of Alaska Southeast Ketchikan campus. 
She says the red-colored water is a bloom of a non-toxic phytoplankton, and it has a long name, Noctiluca scintillans. And so Noctiluca, if you think of the word parts, Nocta means night, Luca meaning light, and then scintillans has the same root word as scintillate. So it's like the scintillating or sparkling night light. She says the phytoplankton is quite common, but not always in this abundance. Large tomato soup-like plumes are floating into local harbors and along beaches. Morgan says this particular phytoplankton is bioluminescent, causing glow-in-the-dark, phosphorescent colors when disturbed at night. They create that light through a chemical reaction in the cell when they are disturbed. So you can disturb them with the prop of a motor, with your hand, with an oar, with your feet. Morgan says the Noctiluca scintillans eat diatoms, a type of algae, which grow well when it's sunny and warm. We had a cool spring, but then all of a sudden we've kind of kicked into like warm, sunny summer for the last month or more, and that has been really good for the diatoms, which then make a lot of food for this Noctiluca scintillans to grow and proliferate. Morgan says Noctiluca scintillans is safe to swim in, but if thick, can be sticky and have an unpleasant odor. It's totally fine. Um, If you get enough of it on you, um, it can be a little bit like fishy smelling kind of, but it's not toxic. Morgan says calling it a red tide is a misnomer. While red tides may be toxic in other parts of the world, that's not the case in Southeast. She says the toxic phytoplankton that causes paralytic shellfish poisoning, Alexandrium cantonella, is a different color. When you see a lot of it, like it bloom levels in the water, it can look kind of yellowish, a little slightly slightly browny, kind of yellowy, golden kind of color if there's a lot of it. Or it can be pretty clear or look a little murky but not any real distinct color. Morgan says ideal conditions for all phytoplankton growth is sunny and warm weather with periods of rain. Because the rain washes mineral-type nutrients out into the water, which then allow, like, like iron, which allows the, the growth of the phytoplankton the next time it's sunny. She says without periods of rain, the blooms likely will decrease, even if the weather remains warm, due to lack of nutrients. While the blooms persist, Morgan suggests jumping in or stirring up the waters at night to enjoy a phosphorescent light show. In Ketchikan, I'm Maria Dudzak. I'm Brooke Schaefer, and this has been Raven News. And now taking a quick look at our community calendar for some things happening in the listening region. The Alaska Department of Fish and Game has closed resident and non-resident mountain goat hunting season in the South Baranoff Hunt Zone in Game Management Unit 4, effective 11.59 p.m. tonight, Monday, July 31st, by emergency order. You're tuned in to your community radio station, Raven Radio, KCAW in Sitka. Good morning.